There's no name uh, like his name. And uh, Yahweh, right, that's a name we'll see here in Jonah 2 here in a moment. But it, it refers to the covenant-keeping nature uh, of the God that we serve. Love that song. Love uh, the richness of the meaning and all that is tied to that. Uh, well, good morning and uh, welcome. Glad to see you all. Go and get your Bibles out. Turn to Jonah 2. Uh, Jonah 2 is where we're going to be this morning as you're flipping to Jonah 2. Actually, we'll be in the last verse of Jonah 1 and then uh, all of Jonah 2, which is Jonah's prayer. Uh, but at the end of Jonah 1, let me just read Jonah 1.17. It's where we'll start this morning. I want to just talk about this briefly here at the outset. <clears throat> it says, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and jo Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And uh, we, come to, <laughs> we come to this part of the story, the account of Jonah, that uh, many, many in our society, but even some or even many in the church question as to whether or not this really happened. And in our post-enlightenment, highly rational uh, society, we go, come on, man. A dude getting swallowed by a fish and then three days later spit out? That doesn't happen. That can't be real. That, that can't be true. And so we treat it like it's a fairy tale or a myth or a legend or things of that nature. And so let me just touch on this briefly. But I find it interesting that we're so quick to balk at this idea that Jonah could in fact have been swallowed by a great fish because it's outside the natural realm. But we don't do that with so many other instances where God operates outside the natural realm. I haven't heard anyone have any issue with the 10 plagues. Well, hey, you know, that's not normal or typical. But we don't balk at that. We do, you go to Joshua 10 and it tells us that the sun stood still. I don't think that's ever happened at any other point in time in human history. And it, and it wasn't like it stood still, like he just got confused and there was like 30 extra minutes in the day. He's chasing armies over miles extended, like incredibly extended time. No one questions that bread rained from heaven for 40 years. You ever seen bread rain from heaven once? Every day for 40 years. No, no one's questioning that. And so I find, it, I, I find it highly inconsistent that we will balk at this and go, well, that could never happen. When in fact, scientifically, th th there's great evidence to show that while it's not likely, it's certainly plausible. I remember for Becky and I a couple years ago when we were living overseas, <coughs> We were at the Natural History Museum in London. And you walk into this room and they had all kinds of animals. And I don't know which whale it is. Don't ask me to tell you which one. But I mean, the thing was just enormous. And so we both walk in and we're just staring at it. It was like suspended from the roof or, 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 or somehow like that. And we're both just staring at it in awe. And, and neither of us even looking at each other. And Becky goes, man, the story of Jonah makes so much sense to me. And I'm sitting there thinking, making so much sense. He's got more room in there than we do in our apartment. The thing is huge. It's just enormous. And yet we look at this story and we go, well, it could never happen. As if this is the craziest thing that's ever happened in all of humanity. I would suggest to you, this isn't even close to the craziest thing that's happened. Not even in the scriptures. In fact, I would suggest to you this isn't nearly as crazy as the idea that the sovereign, ruling, supreme God of all things 
would send his son to die for a rebellious group of people so that they could be in a right relationship with him. (laughs) To me, that's far crazier than some dude getting swallowed by a fish and then spit out three days later. And so, so, right, I understand where some of us may come with doubts or we may balk at this or struggle with this. The truth is there's great science that speaks to the plausibility of this. Relentless mercy, that's what we see. We see God's relentless mercy in Jonah's life. And so let's just press into the text here. <clears throat> Title the message this morning, God's mercy and salvation. God's mercy and salvation. And what we really see is we see that God demonstrates his mercy in his salvation of his people. That's what God is doing. That's how God is at work here. And so let's read the text and uh, let God's word speak for itself. Uh, And then we'll walk through it verse by verse. I'm going to start in verse 17 of chapter 1, read through the end of chapter 2. I would encourage you to read along with me. tells us this. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying... I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the root of the mountains. I mean, is that not so vivid of where he's at? I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. And then here the turning point, the pivot point in this prayer. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. And you might want to underline this if it's not underlined in your Bible already. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And then God speaking to the fish. In verse 10, it says, The Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And before we go any further, why don't we stop? Why don't we pray? Why don't we ask God to move and work and give us eyes to see what he wants to speak into our lives here this morning? Why don't you pray with me? Lord Jesus, as we come before you, we, <laughs> we recognize that uh, you are, in fact, over all things. God, when we, get, when we get a healthy sense of who you are, the thought of, some of, of a story like this is not hard at all to believe or fathom. In fact, this is nothing for you, just nothing for you. So God, I pray that as we move through this, as we, as we look at Jonah's prayer and, and the issues and, and the ways in which he maybe failed to understand what you were truly calling him to, would you give us eyes to see? God, would we see, would we understand, would we know, would we recognize the mercy that you give to us, that you grant to us, and, and your saving work within us? But God, not only for us, as is our custom, we pray for another church in the area. And this morning, I pray for Pastor Nate Bush and for New City Church. God, I thank you for Nate and for his ministry uh, and his, his desire to see people far from you come to know you. And we pray that in New City, now, that you would be honored today, that you would be lifted up and that great glory would come uh, to you. And God, here at Faith Church, we pray that you would be honored and lifted up and that great glory would come to you. And that we would understand the incredible mercy that you grant to us. 
Uh, so Jesus, we love you. We thank you. And I just pray this all in your name. Amen. Uh, God's mercy in salvation. Two things here in the text that we'll get to uh, here in a moment. But let me just maybe preface by saying this. is Anytime, right, anytime we come to the scriptures, and especially I think it's probably easier when we see this in narrative form, um, but when we come to the scriptures, we, we want to see ourselves rightly. We want to see who we really are, and we want to see who God really is. And I think sometimes our tendency is when we come to um, stories or narrative in the scripture, we, we tend to identify, well, I mean, this is just human nature. We do this with any story, but we tend to identify with particular characters. Uh, but our tendency is we tend to um, uh, overinflate our importance, our goodness, our worth, and we tend to identify with uh, maybe the, uh, the, the most worthy or the most righteous character in the story. So, for example, like when you think about David and Goliath, our tendency is we want to identify with David, right? Because he's the guy who really has the thing going on there, and, 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 and he's doing all the good work. But the reality is, is that more often than not, if we're, if we're honest with ourselves, it's not David who we're most like. Maybe it's Saul that we're most like in that we're abdicating our God-given role in terms of what it is that he's called us to do. Or maybe we're most like the Israelites who are operating in fear, not in a place of trust and respect of God. Maybe we're like the Philistines um, and, and, and we're, we're actually um, mocking God. And I say that, I use that as an illustration because when you come to the book of Jonah, <laughs> Most of the characters in Jonah we're not that fired up about, right? You don't really want to be the Ninevites because they're kind of a mess. You don't want to be Jonah because he's a hot mess. This guy cannot figure out what's going on. And I don't think any of us would have the audacity to be like, oh, I'm like God. That's me. I'm like God. I'm the one who's doing these things. And I say that, I say that because the truth is if we're really honest with ourselves, most of us are like Jonah. Most of us operate like Jonah. We think like Jonah. And even in this prayer, at least at a casual glance, it seems to look so good. When you really start pressing into it, this is not a great prayer. It's a very self-centered, self-seeking prayer. And the truth is, in every story of the Bible, hear me when I say this, in every single story in the Bible, God is the hero, period. Everyone. It's never about Abraham or Moses or Isaac or Joseph or David or Saul. It's about God. And those are just individuals who are agents who point us to the reality that in every story of the Bible, God is the hero. And it's no different here in the book of Jonah. And so as we read this, let's just be honest with ourselves this morning about who we really are. Let's be honest about who we are. Let's be honest about who God is. And let's let God speak to us with respect uh, to, to these things. So with that idea of God being the hero, two things in the text this morning. Here's the first thing. Starting in uh, chapter 1, verse 17, moving through the first part of, of 2, verse 6, we see God's salvation through merciful judgment. We see God's salvation through merciful judgment. First of all, God's saving work of Jonah. I mean, if, if God doesn't intervene, Jonah's dead. I think that's pretty obvious here. We see God's mercy in, in that God spares Jonah from a death that he so rightly deserves. And we see God's judgment in that he gives Jonah, just in the smallest of bits, this sense of justice. Okay, Jonah, you want justice? You want judgment? You want, here, let me give you just a taste of that. At which Jonah goes, okay, never mind, I don't want this. Change course, I'll be obedient. Or at least initially. And we see this process that God is moving Jonah through, but it's also a process that God will move you and I through. Right? Where he, he will bring Jonah to salvation, 
Um, but he will also expose his judgment or his justice. And really the emphasis in all of this is not Jonah, it's God and God's mercy and the saving work that he accomplishes. Now, just note this too real quick with respect to God's salvation through merciful judgment. Note that um, in this case, as in every case in the scriptures and in our lives, that God's mercy will always, always, always precede our response to him. That will always show up first. And before Jonah's ever calling out to God, God's mercy is evident. It's clear. It's abundant. It makes me think about what Paul said in Romans 2. He says, it's your kindness, Lord, that leads us to repentance. God, it's your good work in our lives that opens our eyes to, to help us to understand that you are moving us to yourself. God's mercy will always precede our response. And we see God's mercy in light of that. And so notice this, first of all, with respect to God's salvation through merciful judgment, notice this first point that God's sovereignty and salvation. God's sovereignty and salvation. That word sovereign literally means just complete power or total control. That God is in complete control. That God, God is, has total power when it comes to salvation. And look at verse 17. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. I mean, what's clear from the outset is that God is controlling this. God is doing this. Jonah has no say in this. It's God who's doing this. It's God who's moving and working in this way. He appoints the fish to go to Jonah. He appoints the fish to swallow Jonah. He appoints the fish to keep Jonah. It's God's sovereignty. It's his control. It's his work. I mean, the fact that the fish even shows up is an evidence of God's mercy in Jonah's life. He didn't deserve that. This is a rebellious prophet running from God. God would have been completely justified to leave him in the bottom of the ocean. But he doesn't do that. Right? He sends a fish to rescue him. The truth is, God giving him this hint of justice, and it's in that that Jonah begins to cry out. Right? Make no mistake, all that Jonah has done thus far in this story is he has sinned. And God's response at every point is mercy. Now, in the same way that that's true of Jonah's life, it's true of our life. That, that our, our default position, do you know that our default position is sin? That's the default position for all people. I'm not saying that every single moment of every single thing that you and I ever do, it's always wrong. I'm just telling you that our default position because of sin, it, it taints us to our core. And so we are oriented to think in that way. It's our default position and God's response in our life is mercy. Here's what I want you to see at the outset of this situation though, or, or this episode of what's unfolding. God is in complete control of this situation. God is in complete control of everything that's unfolding in Jonah's life. Okay, because I can guarantee you, here's what never happened at any point in time of what was unfolding with Jonah. Arise, go to Nineveh, and tell him to repent. And Jonah says, right, he just heads the other way. Oh, I didn't see him not being obedient. What are we going to do about that? God didn't say that. Right, and when he gets on the boat, God's not going, where did this storm come from? This is really kind of putting a kink in the plans of what I want to accomplish. Or, man, I'm so glad that fish showed up. We were really up a creek without a paddle without that fish. I'm so glad it was there. God never says any of that. Because he's in control of the whole thing. In fact, he appointed every one of those things. Now just pause. And just think about your life. And think about what's going on in your life. 
Think about the particular uh, good things, bad things, fun things, difficult things. Think about the things that are going on in your life. And let me just ask you this question. Is God in control of your life? Not, not are you surrendered to him, though that's a question that we should wrestle with, but, but do you believe that God is in fact in control of your life? Because he is. In the same way that every single thing that was happening with Jonah and where God had his hands all over it, God is in complete control of your life and of my life. And yet do we live like this? Do, do I live in a manner, in a way that would, would say, yes, I believe that God is in control, or no, I, I, I don't believe that God is in control? See, because the, the truth is, is while God is in control, we can't always know why God allows or permits certain things in our lives. Some of you are in a great season. Life is just awesome, and you are loving every last minute of it. And there are others of you uh, this is not a great season of life. It's hard. It's dark. It's depressing. It's weighty. It's burdensome. I don't know if I'm going to make it through. Listen, 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 listen when I tell you God is in control of your life. It might not look like it. It might not feel like it. Doesn't matter. The truth is he's in control. And he has appointed every single thing that's unfolding in your life I don't know why. I don't know what the purpose of that is. He does. And it's not there by mistake. I'm not saying it won't be hard. But he's in control. And do we live this way? You might say, how? How would we begin to live? What would that look like? How would I accomplish that? Well, here's just three things. Make note of them real quick. This is what it is to live within the sovereignty of, of God's work in our life. First of all, we're just obedient. I just do what God tells me to do. Even when it's hard, even when I don't feel like it, if I believe that he's really in control, I'm going to live like he's in control. I'm going to be obedient. Second of all, this is probably the hardest one. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to trust him. Even when it doesn't make sense. Even when it seems like the furthest um, thing that makes sense. I'm going to trust that God's in control because he's repeatedly proven himself to be just that. In control. And then I'm going to live in faithfulness. I'm just going to continue to walk down that road that, that I faithfully believe that God is in fact sovereign in my salvation. He's sovereign in all things. We see God's salvation through merciful judgment. First of all, in God's sovereignty and his salvation. Notice, secondly, in verse 2, uh, we see God's response to our cry. Really, we see both God's response uh, and our cry. Both of those pieces are, are important pieces. But look at what Jonah says. Right, Finally crying out to the Lord. He says, I called out to the Lord. And it wasn't because things were good. It was out of my distress. And he, what's that next word? Answered me. He responded. He spoke to me. He said something. Out of the belly of Sheol. Sheol was the Hebrew understanding of the, the netherworld. It was the underworld. It's where everyone went when they died. On one side you had the righteous. On the other side you had the unrighteous. It's where everyone was. But when you hear guys in the scriptures talk about Sheol, it's like I'm too far gone. That's essentially what he's saying. I'm dead. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. You heard me. God hears us. I called out, you answered. I, I cried and you heard. Do you believe that? 
Do you believe that God hears you? Do you believe that God longs to respond to you? believe that he's going to speak to us? Now, he, he may not respond maybe the way that we want or that we would have thought. Um, but you've got to understand that God answers, that he hears I mean, Jonah's in a bad place. He's talking about being distressed. Distressed. He's in the belly of Sheol. This isn't exactly like, okay, things are a little bit bad. Things are really bad. I mean, he thinks he's dead. That's what's going on in his mind. I'm dead. Um, and yet he's crying out. And God hearing him. So in one sense, I want you to understand, God hears God hears you. It may not feel like it, may not seem like it. God hears you. Here's the other side of this. You've got to cry out. You've got to go to him. You've got to say something. Well, you know, God can read my mind, whatever. He'll get it. He'll figure it out. No, that's not the point. The point is that God longs for us to cry out to him, to go to him, to speak to him. There's an irony in that Jonah, the prophet, is the last one so far in this episode to actually cry out to God. I mean, the sailors long before Jonah are crying out to God. He waited and waited. I think one of the things that I find so fascinating about verse 2 is Jonah quotes almost verbatim two different psalms, Psalm 18.6 and Psalm 120 verse 1. What I find so interesting about that is Jonah is so familiar with these beautiful truths that show up in the Psalms and yet his life is not gripped or altered one bit by them. And what a great caution for us, what a great reminder of us that we can know so much about God. But if your heart is not gripped by him, if your life is not changed by him, if you know about him but you don't know the person of God, you don't really know him. It really is that simple. You don't know him. You know about him. I always like to think of sports figures or actors or musicians. I can tell you all kinds of stuff about Peyton Manning. I know about him. I, I don't know him. I've never spoken to him. I don't know what he's really like. And that's how so many Christians are. We know about God, but we do not know the person of God. And it's why what Jonah is doing here is so important. It's why prayer is so important. And yet I would just maybe challenge you that unlike Jonah, don't wait until things are so drastic. Don't wait until it's life or death. Don't wait until it's like, I might not make it out. Oh, now might be a good time to pray. No, a good time to pray would have been a long time ago. Been a great time to pray. In fact, any time is a good time to pray. A couple weeks ago, uh, I made the statement that prayer is the evidence that I truly believe the gospel. Prayer is the evidence. It's the proof that I truly believe the gospel because when I understand what the gospel really teaches, that I'm dependent upon Jesus, that, that, that I need him, that, that in and of myself I'm insufficient or inadequate, when I understand that, then I begin to understand what prayer's role is in my life. It's not something I do just when I'm in a pinch or in a bind. It's something that I do all the time because I constantly need Jesus. Now, I, don't, I don't want to be overly dramatic about this, but you have to understand we're really always in a drastic situation. You just ebb and flow as to whether or not it feels like it. But your feelings are usually a pretty bad barometer of what's really going on in life. They betray you all the time, both in a positive sense and a negative sense. You can feel like things are good. But if I feel like things are good and that leads me to being far from God, are things good? No, they're bad. 
And so this idea of beginning to understand who I really am about uh, before God, understanding what sin really does to me and the standing and the place that it puts me at, when I begin to understand that, prayer becomes a normal part of my life because I have to throw myself completely upon Jesus because I know that in and of myself I can't do it. So don't make the mistake that Jonah made until waiting until you come to the place. Oh, it's drastic. It's always drastic. And we got to cultivate this reality in our life. This is what sin does to us. It separates us. It alienates us. It pushes us far from God. John Piper has this great quote. He says, we cannot know what prayer is for until we know that life is war. We cannot know what prayer is for until we know that life is war. And what he's saying is, there's never a time of peace. There's never a time where, okay, we can kick back and we got it. There's, sin is always crouching at your door and my door. It's always the case. God's response to our cry Yes, he responds, but in our lives we must cultivate lives that learn to call out independence, that seek after the Lord, that pursue him in all things. God help us, God help us that we would be people that cry out and not just when it's desperate, but God help us, that would be our first response. God's response to our cry, notice this thirdly in verse three, we see God's correction of our sin. God's correction of our sin. Notice what Jonah says. He says, for you cast me into the deep. Okay, wait a second. I thought it was the sailors who threw him overboard. Well, it was, but they were just human agents working on behalf of God, and Jonah understood that. God, you cast me into the deep. You're the one who put me over the edge. You're the one who put me into the water. It's God's correction of our sin. See, this whole episode that we've looked at in these last two weeks is a corrective measure of God in a rebellious prophet's life. We spoke at length about this last week, so I don't want to necessarily press in on all the same things, but, but I do want us to understand that God's correction of our sin, um, first of all, is an act of his love and kindness. When God corrects you of your sin, it's because he loves you, it's because he cares for you, because he wants what's best for you. Now, it will rarely feel like that in the moment. Again, this is where our feelings will betray us. But the truth is, when God corrects you, it's his great love for you. It's because he wants what's best for you. And so God's correction in Jonah's life, Jonah may be beginning to understand God really had his best intent at, at heart. Let me just say two things briefly about this, just to keep in front of us and we'll move forward. First of all, with respect to God, uh, God's correction of our sin, um, know that it will come. Correction will come. If you're in sin, correction will come. Now, hopefully it will come in the form of, of, of a gentle rebuke or conviction of the Spirit, and you just repent re between yourself and the Lord, and you're done. Because the question isn't if, the question is when. It will come. And maybe tied to the question of when is to, to what manner and what lengths does God have to go to move you to the point where you will, in fact, receive his correction. And that's where the gentle rebuke of the Spirit is so much kinder, so much easier than just fighting it. Had Jonah just responded initially, he could have spared himself a lot of heartache and turmoil. Some of you have seen that play out in your life. I know I've seen that play out in my life. When I fight it, fight it, fight it, it doesn't go very well. It's God's love and his kindness, right, drawing us back to himself. First of all, know that it will come. Second of all, how will you respond when it comes? 
So knowing that it's coming, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to listen to it? Are you going to heed it? Are you going to reject it? Are you going to live in humility and repentance? Or are you going to respond in, in a hard-hearted, um, calloused, disobedient manner? God's correction of our sin. And then finally this, look at verses 4 through 6. I just wrote this down. I wasn't really sure how to totally capture what ha- what's happening here, but I just wrote down our need for salvation. Our need for salvation. Really two things that Jonah is getting at here. Look at verse 4. He says, then I'm driven away from your sight. See, part of our need for salvation is understanding our separation from God. I'm, I'm driven away from your sight. I'm separated. See, this is what sin does to us is it separates us from God. We see our separation from God. I'm driven from your sight that I'm put at odds with God. This is what rebellion does to us. It puts us at odds or it puts us at a distance uh, between us and the Lord. An understanding that all sin will drive us to this place. And so Jonah here is faced with the implications of his disobedience. And so what does he do with it? Look at the second half of verse 4. Kind of an interesting verse in context or part of the verse. He says, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Now at first glance you go, wow, that's really confident for a guy who really has done everything wrong so far. Not only are you going to live, but you're going to be back at the temple worshiping. Now, I don't think it's that Jonah is necessarily speaking in confidence of himself. I think he's more getting at a persistence that his response is, I'm going to persist in prayer and I'm going to let God do what he decides to do. Remember that persistent widow that Jesus talked about in Luke 18? And there was that judge and over and over and over and over again, like a nagging three-year-old, right, who's just relentless, Justice, 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 justice. And finally the judge is like, fine. And he grants her justice. And Jesus' comment is, if an unrighteous judge is like this, what would God the Father be like? Right? Pushing us to this persistence. But we don't ever persist until we first understand that we're separated from God. And of course, we recognize our separation from God because of what we see in verses 5 and 6. We recognize our dreadful state, just the dire nature of where we're really at. Look what he says, man. They're so vivid. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. Now, I don't know about you. I mean, I've been in the ocean a few times where you're swimming with seaweed and stuff, and it kind of gets wrapped around you. But I'm on the beach where it's like four feet deep, and you kind of pull it off you and whatever. Now, you can just imagine sinking. And it's darkness is enveloping you and just wrapped up. You know, such a vivid picture. This dude's hopeless. He's hopeless. And the truth is, in the same way that he's hopeless in his particular standing, you and I are hopeless before God, left to ourself. And we must be aware of our state our true state in and of ourselves and allow that to drive us back to the Lord, back to his salvation, back to his goodness in us and his work in our lives. When you look at verse five and six, the waters closed in over my head to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the root of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Now I read this and I'll tell you one of the things when I think about, truthfully, our dreadful state, just how... um, how far, how alienated we are from God. 
And I see in this just the futility of works salvation. I see the absolute futility in moralism. Here's what I mean by this. Imagine you come to Jonah in that moment, right? You got your scuba gear on or whatever, and I'm dying. Hey, bro, if you would just straighten out your knees, and if you could kick your feet a little bit harder, you'd get to the top. If you would just give a little bit more effort, if you would just try harder, if you would persist a little bit longer, you could make it. No, Jonah, if you swim as hard as you possibly can, you're still going to die. That's the point. Right? In and of ourselves, we can't fix the hopelessness. Now, we'll try, but we can't. We're hopeless. We're left to ourself. The futility of Jonah in this moment attempting to try harder. See, because what Jonah didn't do, and he also realized that he couldn't do, is he could not save himself. We are saved through God's merciful work, and in that alone. And I think at least at some level, and in a moment I'll tell you why I think Jonah totally misses the point, but I think at the end of, of, of verse 6, Jonah at least understands this point, that it's God and his salvation alone when he says, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. You did this. You saved me. You redeemed me. You rescued me. You made it right. It was God and God alone who did this, this, this turning point. And so you move, first of all, we see God's salvation, God, God's work uh, through merciful judgment. And then this second half of this chapter, we see a response to God's mercy. Right, the pivot point being the end of verse 6, you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. And then let me do this. I want to read verses 7, 8, and 9 again. As I read it, I want you to ask yourself, Two questions as I read it. One, is there anything here that maybe seems out of place or shouldn't be here? And maybe what might be more prominent, is there some things that are not here given the context of what's unfolded thus far that really should be here? So just think about those two things as I read this, and then we'll talk about that a little bit. Here's Jonah's response. Okay, God, you rescued me. And keep in mind, this is a rebellious prophet running from the Lord. And here's what he's saying. When my life was fainting away, I remember the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Anything here that shouldn't be anything that wasn't there that maybe should be. Let's speak to both of those for a minute. I think what's notably absent from Jonah's prayer is there's no confession, there's no repentance, there's no admission of guilt. I mean, do you see that? At no point does he say, I was wrong, forgive me, I, I, I did what you called me not to do, I was disobedient. At no point. He doesn't own that fact. Secondly, when you, when you look at some of the things that he is saying, I believe his response is actually quite self-centered. And, and we'll see this here in a moment, but let me just briefly point out in general that Jonah repeatedly is, in a, in a totally appalling way, is going to appeal to his own piety and works. What's shocking is that someone in total rebellion could say, let me appeal to how good I am. 
Again, showing the futility of us attempting to bring our good works before the Lord. I mean, you, you can't be more clueless than this guy is. And then thirdly, and I think this will help us to really understand what unfolds in chapter 4. Because I was always confused about, man, he seems so repentant here. And then he goes and then he's such a knucklehead in chapter 4. And his whole thing is he's so mad at God because he's merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. How can you be like this but then be so bent out of shape? Well, here's what I think is actually happening. I think Jonah is able to speak the truth intellectually, but it has not gripped his heart spiritually or personally. It's kind of like we were talking about earlier in verse 2. I can tell you all the Psalms, but they have no impact in my life. I can speak to the truth, but my heart is not changed. And in this, Jonah is really... No different than so many people in the scriptures who could talk all about Jesus, but their lives are not surrendered to him. They don't love him. They don't follow him. Jonah's no different than the Pharisees who could quote the scriptures better than really anybody. But their heart is hard towards Christ. He's no different than the prophets of Israel who um, supposed to even speak on behalf of God and yet failed to speak truthfully for him. He's no different than the nation of Israel that repeatedly um, failed to follow him. And so while Jonah's response is incredibly crooked, I do think that it gives us insight into what a proper response looks like. And so maybe in a redemptive sense or in an applicable sense, we'll grab what he does, but then frame it in a positive way to speak into our life. And so notice three things, three things in terms of a response to God's mercy. Verse seven, Jonah says this, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. Now, do you see it there, what he's doing? My life was fainting away. Things were tragic. And then I did this for you, God. I remembered the Lord. And you go, well, maybe not, maybe not. Well, look at the next phrase. My prayer came to you into your holy temple. Jonah's actually insinuating that what he did turned the tide here. I remembered you. I prayed to you. Essentially, God, I manipulated you. That's what he's getting at here. And so while he's right in that we should, in fact, remember the Lord, he is wrong in that his emphasis is not in remembering the Lord, being overwhelmed by God's goodness and faithfulness and kindness and mercy, but that his emphasis is in himself. God, I chose you. Aren't I great? That's what he's suggesting here, which is nothing short of repulsive and disgusting in light of God's incredible mercy when God would have been totally justified to just let him sink and die. And as ridiculous as this is, I think it, it, it speaks to us in that our response to God's mercy should in fact lead us to a place of remembering the Lord. But we remember the Lord not in, God, look at how great I am. Look at what I've done. We remember the Lord and that we're reminded of how great God is. We're reminded of how faithful he is, of his steadfast love, of his incredible grace, of his, of his unending goodness to us. Over and over and over again, that's what we remember. And while Jonah failed, there's plenty of guys in the scriptures that do a much better job at this. Probably my favorite example of this is found in Psalm 77. You can flip there if you want. You don't have to, but make note of this. This is a psalm you probably want to spend some time in because it's awesome. 
But here the psalmist is talking about the trouble, the struggle, the difficulty in his life. In fact, here's what he says starting in verse 7. Will the Lord spurn forever? Okay, not exactly in a great place, right? And never again be favorable. Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? This is a dark place this person finds themselves in. So honest, right? So honest about where they're at. And then look at what he says. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember, same word, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I'll ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. And then, this line is so awesome. What God is great like our God. Now, explain to me, explain to me what's going on in the the life of a person that five verses ago, will you spurn forever? Have you forgotten to be gracious? Do you no longer love us? And then you're saying, what God is great like our God? Only one of two things is going on here. This guy's got some mental issues going on in his head, and he has trouble putting things together. Or, in the midst of this incredible trouble in his life, He has simply appealed to the work of God and it has radically changed and transformed him. In Psalm 73, you see a very, very similar thing uh, that unfolds uh, there. Jonah was right to remember the Lord. He was wrong to put any confidence or hope or, or security in himself. What we see in Psalm 77 is that God changes us, right? God changes us when we remember him and think of him. God help us. God help us that we would be quick to remember the Lord in our response to his mercy. Notice this secondly in verse 8 and 9. I just wrote this down. Uh, Put your confidence in the Lord. Put your confidence in the Lord. Uh, I I think repeatedly what we see here in verse 8 and 9 is Jonah is putting confidence in his work, what he does. I mean, verse 8, he says, "Those those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Now, I never fully understood what he was getting at. Here's what I believe Jonah's saying here. I believe what Jonah is doing is unbeknownst to him. He is thinking back to the sailors on the boat. And he's saying, well, you started to call out to Yahweh, but you won't be faithful. And then ironically in verse 9, he says, "Um, I with a voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Now look back at chapter 1, verse 16. Of course, Jonah doesn't know that this happened. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. They did the things that Jonah talks about doing, but Jonah will not actually do. See, Jonah's saying, I'm not like those guys. They said they're going to do it, but they're not really going to do it, even though the reader knows they already did it. You're just talking about doing it. They already did it. See, Jonah's putting confidence in himself. Not in the Lord. He's putting confidence in what he's doing, not in the finished work of Christ. He's saying, my my work is going to earn me God's favor, not the work that has already been accomplished in your place and in my place. That for all of eternity puts us in right standing with God. And so where Jonah missed it, where we would get it, is that we would put our confidence in the Lord. Now here's three things in verses 8 and 9 that, that we should put our confidence in the Lord in or maybe speaks more specifically to that. First of all, uh, in verse 8, he says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Put your confidence in God's steadfast love. 
Jonah understands that God is a God of steadfast love, that he is a God who's faithful and true, and that, that we must put our confidence in God's steadfast love, that his love is reliable, that it is trustworthy. Hear me when I say this. It is unconditional. It's unconditional in that there is nothing that you could do that will make God stop loving you. But it does not mean that it is uh, fully permissible. That's where we get confused sometimes. We think that uh, unconditional also means fully permissible. There's nothing that my children can do that will change my love for them, but there's plenty of things that they can do where I can say, we don't do that. And there's a consequence and a punishment. And sometimes we, well, if God's love is unconditional, he'll love me no matter what. You're right, he'll love you no matter what, but he loves you enough to change you and he wants you to stop doing some of those things. And his steadfast love, you put your confidence in that. Let me just ask it to you this way. Is your confidence in your ability to love God or in his ability to love you? Where's your confidence? If your confidence is in your ability to love God, you're probably miserable because you're just not going to be very good at it. And you're always going to wonder, have I done enough? Have I done enough? Have I done enough? But when I put my confidence in his ability to love me, man, that, that's life-changing. Because there's a rise and fall as to whether or not I'm good enough. It just rises and falls upon the fact that Jesus has proven himself to be good enough and he remains good enough. Can't think of that without thinking about Lamentations 3. <laughs> Listen, anytime you write a book called Lamentations, life is bad, okay? And if you were to go read the first 20 verses of Lamentations 3, Jeremiah is talking about how horrible it is. In fact, at one point he talks about it's, life is like chewing on gravel. That's one of about 30 things that he says to describe how bad life is. And over and over and over and over and over and over again, he's saying all these horrible things. And then he says this, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Isn't that awesome? It's incredible. See, that's the confidence of God's steadfast love in our life. Put your confidence in his steadfast love. Second of all, put your confidence in what he does. Right? Jo Jonah's wrongly pointing to his sacrifices and to his vows. He's putting his confidence in what he will do. And we must put our confidence in what God has done and will continue to do. Right? Where do you place your confidence? Am I, am I thinking about what I will do for God or is my confidence in the finished work of God? When I place my confidence in what I do, uh, I'm living a life of moralism. I have works-based religion. And really, you have empty religion. When my confidence is in the finished work of Jesus, it's in that that life begins to flourish. Confidence in what he does. Here's the third thing. Confidence in the fact that salvation belongs to the Lord. Confidence in the fact that salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, when you really get this, right, when you really begin to own this, Life just opens up. Okay. Um, look up here. Look at me. I love you. You will fail miserably at everything. Wow, that's really encouraging. It's just the truth. Before God, 
you and I will fail repeatedly. If salvation in any way, shape, or form belongs to us, we're toast. If salvation belongs to the Lord, in one sense, it doesn't matter that I'm going to fail miserably. Because when I get that it belongs to God, and it no longer rises and falls with me, there's no doubt. There's no wondering. There's no, have I done enough? God, do you still love me? And, and see, here's, here's where it gets real practical real quick. I don't know about you, but um, I fail often in my life. Uh, if you brought my wife into the room or you brought my four kids into the room, they could unfold at length all of the ways that I fail. Okay? And uh, that, I'm okay with that because the same is true for you. If I brought the people closest to you into your life, they can tell me the same thing. So I know I'm in good company here. All right? Um, but, but when we understand that, that salvation belongs to the Lord, it's not that I don't care about those things. But when I fail, when you fail, and you will, I'm not crushed as, as to wonder whether or not God's going to come back. I'm not left wondering, do you still really love me? Yes, in my sin, we need to repent and go back to the Lord. But when I fail, it's no longer, God, will you love me? Will you come back? Can I come back? It's when you fail, you get up and you run back. Because it never depended upon you. Right, Romans 5, God demonstrates his love for us in that while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. He knew we were never going to have our act together. And so we put our confidence, we put our hope in the fact that salvation does not belong to us. It belongs to him. I mean, this is really the essence of the gospel, that I can't do it on my own. And I'm dependent upon him. And so I throw myself upon him. I realize it's all that I have, but I also realize it's all that I need. Put your confidence in the Lord. Here's the final thing briefly, verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. I just wrote this down, be reminded of God's sovereignty. And the place where, where Jonah started and the place where we started, it's the place where we finished. This, this, this episode is really bookended uh, by God's sovereignty, by being reminded of the fact that God is in control of every single thing that's unfolding in your world, in my world, in the world around us. Nothing, nothing, nothing is outside his control. But part of our response to God's mercy is also to understand that in God's complete control and power of all things, that he is the only one who can extend mercy to us. And in that, I, I can't think of a more humbling and a more gracious response than for us to come to the communion table. Um, so loved ones, as, as we come to the table, let me maybe frame it with respect to what we've just walked through. I really want to emphasize God's mercy for us that God has spared us. In the same way that Jonah was spared from God's wrath, you and I can be spared from God's wrath. What you and I rightly deserve has not been given to us. It has not been granted to us because of God's kindness to us. Because Jesus took uh, our place when he went to the cross. Now here at Faith, we practice what we call open communion, which means you don't have to be a member of the church to participate, but we do ask that you are in fact a follower of Jesus because that's what the Bible teaches us. And so I understand in a room this size that it's entirely possible, in fact, probably very likely that there's someone or maybe multiple people that are sitting in the room and you cannot look to a point in time in your life where you've turned from sin and towards Jesus. 
And if that's you, I would just encourage you to let this moment be the moment that you remedy that. That just in the simplest of face, you would just say, God, I recognize that I have sinned. I recognize that, that I'm at odds with you and that you and you alone can save me. Salvation is free. Following Jesus will cost you everything. I don't want to sell some cheap gospel to you. Jesus demands everything of us, but that is not what saves you. What puts you in right standing with God is simply turning from your sin and turning towards Jesus and embracing what he has done in your place and in my place. And so if you find yourself in that, in that place this morning, I would just simply invite you in this next moment just to quietly between yourself and the Lord, just say, God, that's me. That's me. I, I'm at odds with you. I'm apart from you. I'm separated from you. Would you forgive me of my sin and make me right? And then in that, uh, I would invite you to be, uh, to, to let one of the very first things that you would do as a follower of Jesus be to participate in communion. That we would remember the death of Jesus. We would remember um, his sacrifice, right? The being spared uh, from his wrath. And so as we come to the communion table, just in, in this sense, let us think um, highly, highly, highly of God's mercy. Uh, but unlike Jonah, let us respond in a way that, that understands and rightly responds to God's mercy in his life. So we have, we have five tables. There's two in the back, three in the front. Uh, if you need a gluten-free option, we have that in the gold plate up here in the middle. Um, we would say the middle aisle and then the, the far side aisles. We try to do the one-way traffic thing as best as possible. Come forward, the two middle aisles, head to the back. And so just kind of loop around one way or the other uh, to get the elements. And so at this time, I'd invite you to come to grab the elements, hold them, and then we'll partake together here once everyone has uh, grabbed the elements. So let's come. Don't let this be just a ritual. Don't let this be something that, well, this is what we do. But use this time to really press into the Lord. To be reminded of his mercy. To see the incredible gift of his salvation and his goodness to you and me and all of humanity in our lives. Thank him for his kindness and mercy. Allow him to speak into the areas of your life where there's uh, sin. And then turn and repent and seek to be made right.